September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. In this episode, hear from Lawrence Sprung, who lost his brother-in-law to suicide and now serves on the National Board and Finance Committee for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. In this episode, learn about how to manage your mental and financial health while dealing with loss and why suicide is not the answer to your debt problem. Debt is not a death sentence. You are not alone. You are not alone. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today we have certified financial planner Lawrence Sprung on the show. Lawrence Sprung is the president and founder of Midland Financial Inc. and helps his clients plan their financial future. Thanks for being on the show, Lawrence. Thank you for having me, Melanie. It's a uh, pleasure to be here and I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, excited to have you here. You know, I'd just like to kind of dive right in and start the show by learning a little bit more about your passion for finance and how you came to be a CFP. Yeah, so I mean, I became a CFP by accident to some degree. It wasn't a uh, a passion of mine from the outset. I was actually on the path to becoming a doctor. I was uh, pre-med in college, and uh, luckily I decided I didn't want to be in school for the next seven, eight, ten years. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, ironically enough, a good friend of mine was uh, finishing up an internship at Dean Witter, and I decided to replace him and continue it for him. And at the same time, that same summer, I got a job in sales and it really alerted my passion for the finance industry. And growing up from a household, a little bit about my background, my mom had cancer at a very young age. Mm, So I, yeah, thank you. I saw the financial impacts that an illness can have on a family. Not that we were poor, we were middle class and, and struggled because of it. And it really led me to a passion of how a really good financial advisor, a really good financial planner can help a family navigate some of those really rough financial experiences that a family would go through. So a culmination of all those things together really led me down the path where I am today. And 20 years later, uh, I love what I do and I love helping families each and every day. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, I think, you know, the best part about getting your finances together is having this kind of freedom, you know, more choices and yeah, being able to navigate these incredibly grief stricken situations that are so tough to manage and tough to deal with. Yeah, I mean, we call them here critical financial events. And some of them are planned, you know, getting married, having a baby, buying a new house. 
and those you will need to learn how to navigate as well. But at the same time, there are a lot of unplanned critical financial events like death and disability and divorce and things of that nature. And equally, you want to be in a position that you're prepared for that. And having a financial advisor, a really good one, and having a financial plan can certainly help. It's not going to eliminate the outcomes from those events, but hopefully it'll mitigate some of the impact and you know, land you in a better place than you were had you not had those resources. Yes, totally. I love that. So shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about something that's a little bit more dark and depressing. And I know it's something that I've talked about on the show and it's something that I have personal experience with as well. And that is about suicide. You know, my grandfather died by suicide uh, on my mom's side. So I never met him. And Also, my cousin died by suicide, and I personally have suffered from suicidal ideation in the past. It's something that is extremely difficult to deal with, both as the person going through it and both as a loved one watching someone go through it or potentially go through it. And so in 2004, you lost your brother-in-law to suicide, and I know that must have been so extremely difficult, and it sounds like it was a kind of turning point for you. And I wanted to ask, how did that affect your mental health and financial health? Yeah. So first of all, Melanie, I'm sorry for the losses that you've experienced. And I empathize with the the feelings that you've had. And I'm glad that you're working through those and taking care of yourself because that's uh, very paramount to this whole conversation. And you'll probably hear this as a theme throughout some of the answers that I give you. Uh, Yes, in 2004, I lost my brother-in-law, Keith Milano, to suicide after fighting bipolar disorder. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, he just couldn't find a way out. And this was his his solution, if you will. The timing of it, uh, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but Midland Financial, my firm, was launched in October of 2004, just one month later. And it was something. Yeah, it was something that was in the works for quite a while. You don't just launch a firm on a month's notice. And it was something that we had considered delaying. And when putting it in context with my brother-in-law and his passion for family and whatnot, we knew that he would not want me to do that. So I continued on that path. But to answer your question, yeah, so certainly, you know, an event like that certainly has an impact. And one of the things that my wife and I had committed to at the time after losing my brother-in-law, that we weren't going to let him go quietly, that we had always been charitable in a number of different endeavors. And at that point, it really was an inflection point for us to start focusing on mental health and suicide prevention. And we really used my brother-in-law as a platform to start talking about it, raising awareness, having conversations, telling my brother-in-law's story so that others would feel comfortable telling theirs and not feeling like they were not being listened to and people didn't want to hear their story. Uh, You know, everybody deals with things differently. I pretty much, again, looked at launching my firm a month later. I became ingrained in that. At that time, I also had uh, an 18-month-year-old son, And those really became my focus. So I started focusing on building my business, spending time with the family, with my son, and also utilizing our loss as a platform to raise awareness and educate others. 
I love that. And I think that's so important that you're taking this loss and trying to turn it into a platform to kind of preserve your brother-in-law's legacy. And I know bipolar can be extremely difficult to deal with. We've had Sinclair Caesar, who was on episode two, talk about the struggles of bipolar. And I think for a lot of people, suicide is not something that they want per se. They just want the pain to stop and they haven't found a way to do that yet in the right way. And so opening this platform to even talk about it is so important because I think there's a lot of misconceptions around suicide. I think there, you know, there's a lot of taboo and stigma just around mental health and suicide and people feel like they can't talk about it. They can't reach out, which just further, you know, stigmatizes it. And so I think it's really important that we have these difficult discussions. And I'm so happy that you were able to raise awareness about this issue. Well, it's ironic that you said what you just said, because uh, I remember very vividly having a conversation with my brother-in-law several months before his passing, and we were planting some trees in my backyard, and he was telling me about how he felt every day. Now, he was a young, vibrant guy, 27 years old, well-built, went to the gym almost every day, and he would tell me how it felt like he would wake up in the morning and have a 104-degree fever, like he really felt like he had the flu almost every day. And you couldn't see that. You couldn't understand what he was going through. And that was his pain, if you will, that he was going through. And he didn't feel that there was a way to cease that pain. And that's really what it comes down to. As far as the stigma, you know, I think that now, I think thankfully, the conversations and stigma has definitely been reduced from the time, you know, 15, 16 years ago when we lost my brother-in-law. And we're seeing a lot more conversation and openness about it. I think one of the most recent examples is the, you know, in light of the COVID pandemic, New York City, one of the first things they did was roll out a mental health hotline. You know, if you think about it, when 9-11 took place in New York City, they didn't roll out a hotline like that. So yeah. I think we, we've come a long way and the conversation, and that's exactly why I utilize this platform, because we want to make it an open and honest conversation and inspire those that are suffering, having trouble, let them know that it's okay. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to seek help and it's okay to make yourself better. Yes, I totally love that. And I'm so happy about the mental health hotline. I think that's going to do a lot of good, especially during this difficult time. So you, you now serve on the National Board and Finance Committee for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which congratulations, it sounds amazing. Thank what you. has the committee achieved and what have you learned from your work there? So, I mean, the committee is just a, you know, one portion of the overarching organization. We as a board just help drive some of the policy and the infrastructure and how the organization is going to operate. Um, you know, some of the things that I'm most proud about is when I started with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention as a national board member, we were like a seven or eight million, maybe even lower than that dollar organization. Now, the good news and the bad news is now we're, you know, about a $50 million organization. So the good news is, yeah, we've grown quite a bit. So, I mean, the good news is that we have grown. Mm -hmm. The bad news is that we've had to grow in order to still fight this problem. But at the same time, some of the things that I take away and learn 
are, you know, the, the stories I hear from people. A lot of the people that are involved with our organization, uh, you know, it's a very much so grassroots effort, local community driven. And a lot of them have either suffered from, currently suffering, or have lost or been touched by suicide. And the stories and the experiences that I've heard are just truly touching. And it really shows you that there is a community. And if everybody out there who was in a position that they were suffering or feeling some kind of pain, either personally or because of a loss, would reach out and find this community, it's certainly helpful. And I think it would help more people lead them down the path of finding the help and the, the assistance that they need. So for me, that's the biggest takeaway is every person has a story. And every person who, you know, every situation where somebody has either attempted or even just suffers or has died, there's a story behind that person. And the fact that they're involved with our organization because we are the leader in the area is so gratifying to be a part of the organization that so many people are gravitating to. Yeah, I think that's so wonderful. You know, the work that you're doing to support people who have suffered from suicidal ideation or potentially have lost someone due to suicide and really providing that community aspect and also the funding. It sounds wonderful that you've grown so much. But yeah, to your point, it's it's sad that it has grown so much because there is probably a need there. I think a lot of us are shifting um, in different ways, given everything that's going on. And mental health is a huge issue at this very moment. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot. We are certainly hoping that we could put ourselves out of business, you know, just like any other charitable organization out there. The goal is to eradicate whatever disease or symptoms you're trying to raise money for. And one of our programs that we, or one of our audacious goals and our initiatives that we rolled out about a year or two ago is called Project 2025. And our goal as an organization is to reduce the suicide rate by 20% by the year 2025. Unfortunately, I think the current events that we're seeing from an economic standpoint and mental health standpoint may inhibit us from achieving that goal. But quite frankly, even if we hit half of that, that would be a huge win for us. Definitely. And I think it's important to set those very tangible goals, specific goals and, you know, even if you don't meet them, you still probably made more progress than you did if you didn't set a goal, right? I think that's kind of the great thing about having these big audacious goals is you're like, okay, well, I didn't, you know, meet the 20%, but I made 10% or, you know, We're whatever. We're going to go down swinging. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about losing someone to suicide for people that are dealing with that immediate loss of a loved one from suicide. What steps do you recommend that they take for their own mental and financial health? I know, depending on the relationship, whether it's a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a friend, you know, there's probably a lot of different situations and, and different feelings around that. But I would just love to hear your perspective on what people can do if they are grieving the loss of a loved one from suicide and, and how they can take care of themselves both mentally and financially. Sure. So let, let's address the mental aspect first. I mean, you know, first and foremost, where uh, mental health and suicide, I think people get confused or uh, misconception is it's really no different than any other disease. So 
if you lose somebody to suicide, it's really no different than losing uh, somebody to cancer. I lost my mom at age 47 to cancer. That's a devastating thing. And quite frankly, it's on the same level and the same playing field as losing somebody to suicide. The only difference is you may not have either understood or seen what the symptoms were with that individual. So the processing is is a little bit different and maybe a little bit more difficult. But at the same time, you really need to treat it the same way. So one of the things, you know, AFSP has is we have a thing called healing conversations. Basically, if you've lost somebody to suicide, you can contact your local chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And we have trained volunteers that we can send out and sit with you and or your family, and we pair you up to similar losses. So if you're somebody that's lost a son, we'll send out a mom who's lost a son. If you've lost a sibling, we'll send somebody out who's lost a sibling because they've gone through that same situation that you have and they can understand to some degree what you're going through. So that is a great tool that we have and it's available to all of our chapters and we're in all 50 states. So that's something to utilize. And then, you know, from a financial aspect, again, it's no different than any other disease. You do not want to do anything that's going to make any rash changes to your situation during this time because emotionally you're grieving. There are a lot of emotions going on and you don't want to make a a decision in the short term that potentially is going to affect you in the long term. But At the same time, if you have a financial advisor, you know, it would be key for you to give them a call and fill them in about what's going on in your life, because then you can have an extra barrier that if you call up and you try to do something that is out of norm or you may be making a mistake by doing so, hopefully that advisor is going to stop you and say, hey, hang on a second. I know what you've been through recently. Is this really the best time to be doing X or Y, and utilize them as an advocate for your situation. At the same time, you know, there are things that you'll want to consider maybe getting ducks in a row. If you don't have a plan, getting one in place. But the reality is, when you lose somebody, whether again it's to a disease or to suicide, the whole idea is, you know, unless it has to be done, table it, set it aside, and do what you need to do and take care of that mental health first, and then worry about the financial health. And the mental health is taking care of yourself, making sure you're getting the assistance you need, whether it be counseling or simply, you know, the healing conversations through AFSP, or even just talking to a trusted family member. You have to start working through that grieving process before you start making any major financial decisions, for sure. Yeah, I love the solution of the healing conversations. I think that's so wonderful and I think it's brilliant. And so for anyone that potentially has gone through the situation, I think they should definitely do that. You know, there are grief support groups as well. I think reaching out to friends, there's the crisis text line. You can text home to 741741. And I am so happy you mentioned that suicide is should be treated the same as a disease because I feel like a lot of people have very strong opinions about suicide, like, oh, it's selfish, or I can't believe they did that. Or, you know, they have a lot of different opinions or ideas on, you know, why this person did that. And the thing is, we will never have a complete idea, probably. And we will not know the level of pain that that person has gone through. 
And what I've mentioned before personally, and I think a little bit on this podcast is that for a lot of mental health issues, they are invisible diseases. So you can't really see them. So it's like, you know, if you had a broken leg and you had a cast around it and you were limping, you'd be like, okay, you're taking care of that. You have a broken leg. You need to go see a doctor and take care of that. But if you are dealing with extreme depression, extreme anxiety, OCD, bipolar, whatever the case may be, other people might not be able to see that, but your brain is a living hell, a living nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I've said that before, that sometimes the scariest place to live is in your head. And for people with mental health issues, it absolutely is, but no one else can necessarily see that. The brain is an amazing organ that we know very little about or not enough about. And that's where a lot of these issues stem from. And again, I have a, a point of reference when my mom was ill. This is going back in in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. You know, she had cancer. She was going through chemo treatments. People saw how debilitating it was, her losing her hair and not feeling well. And it was clear. And you know what? Even in those instances, there were people that she was close with that decided that, you know, they weren't sticking around because maybe it could maybe cancer could be caught. Maybe maybe I don't want to be with somebody who's going to be a downer. And, you know, it's no different here. The difference here that makes it even more difficult is exactly what you said. The individual could be suffering almost as as badly as my mother may have been but they look perfectly fine on the outside. And that's the biggest and the hardest thing to delineate and make that distinction between the two. And that's when if you see somebody and you see something like that and something's off, it's so important and vital that you ask them, hey, everything okay? You know, are, are you okay? And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, to make that uh, approach to somebody and try to uh, extend your hand because it might be something that ultimately gets them out of where they are and, and ultimately save their life. Yeah, I think people really underestimate the power of a simple text that says, hey, how are you doing? I'm thinking of you. Something like that. Or like, how are you doing? Like, let me know if you need anything. Just reaching out to people who you know, might be suffering or might be on the brink. I think just, you know, even a simple, you know, thing to reach out like that can do a lot of good. And I know when I've been in depressive episodes, just getting a text from a friend to be like, hey, how are you doing? I'm thinking of you. It's like, oh, wow. Like they're actually taking the time and effort to reach out to me, even though I know I'm not pleasant to be around right now. And that can mean a lot for people because depression and anxiety and mental health issues can kind of also poison your brain in a way to think like, no one wants to be around me. Like, I don't want to be around me. And so right. you can kind of self-isolate in a way. And so I think for people on the outside, you know, reaching out, trying to be supportive as best as you can, you know, those all can go a long way to helping other people. A hundred percent. I mean, my wife and I had uh, through the Keith Milano Memorial Fund, which we set up, which is housed at AFSP, basically we raise money in his name and the money stays at AFSP. We allocated a few hundred thousand dollars a couple of years ago to the Seize the Awkward campaign, which is again being refreshed. We just did, a, a, they're doing a newer version of it. It was, there's going to be some TV commercials, but it's mainly on Instagram and other social media outlets. And the whole premise behind it is, 
for teenagers and college students, you know, if you see something, it's okay to ask somebody else if they're all right. It's okay. Seize the awkward. It might feel awkward asking them if they're okay in that way. But at the same time, you know what? You're better off asking and looking silly than not asking at all and waking up one day and hearing that something happened to that person. So it's worth seizing that awkward moment and asking the question for sure. Definitely. I love that campaign. I think it's so brilliant and such a good idea. And yeah, for people listening, who are three people that you can reach out to today and just say you're checking in on them and that you're thinking of them? That could go a long way. I encourage any listener to do that right now. And so I wanted to shift gears a little bit and get more into kind of the money. And so, you know, as a financial planner, you probably see a lot of different financial situations. And I wanted to talk to you about what would you say to someone who is considering suicide because of their debt and a little bit of backstory. I started my blog, Dear Debt, seven years ago in January 2013 because I was super depressed about my debt. I had $81,000 in student loan debt. I couldn't find a full-time job that would be good enough to pay it back. And I just was in a complete spiral. And to make a long story short, the blog helped me pay off debt and it was a wonderful community and a wonderful thing. But I also started getting a lot of search terms for people saying, I want to kill myself because of debt, which has led me to do a suicide prevention blog tour every September with my blog friends to try to get the word out about suicide and debt. And, you know, that's kind of how I got into this podcast and now mental health and wealth is because I kept getting all of these search terms around this topic. And then it just kind of evolved into now my new site, Mental Health and Wealth, and the new podcast, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. And so I've talked to literally hundreds of people over the past seven years who have emailed me and they think I'm not going to respond, but I respond to every single person and they're on the brink of suicide and feel like I'm worth more dead than I am alive and I can't take care of my family and I'm so ashamed. And, you know, what would you say to someone who's considering suicide because of their debt? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, you have to direct them to the right resources for the non-financial aspect, the non-debt. And my first comment would be to try to steer them to contacting the suicide hotline if that's something that they're seriously considering and bringing up. And if not, you know, at least seeking the help that they need from the mental aspect of things, because this is really a two-pronged approach. It's really a mental health issue that's weighing on their mind. And it's probably spurned by this debt issue, which is a financial issue. And the reality is you can fix your financial situation. There are ways to do it. It may take some time, but at the same time, even if you're the healthiest person in the world, you know, you have to be, you have to worry about your health first, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You want to get that in order first because the financial thing will, you know, you'll figure a way to work it out. So it shouldn't be a cause for it. So the first thing is they have to get the help that they need. The second thing is depending on the level of debt, there are a number of different strategies that you have to look at to see how to tackle it. You know, at the most basic level, you want to take a look at what your monthly budget is, see what's coming in and what's going out. Is there extra money to start chipping away at the debt? Are there opportunities that you can go to the folks that hold the debt and negotiate it down without having a tremendous impact on your credit rating? But at the same time, if you're that 
concerned about your mental health, does it really matter if you hurt your credit a little bit? You might as well get that, you know, your mental spot correct. And there are, there are people out there, there are advisors you've had on this show that can, you know, that are great resources that can actually help navigate this whole debt process and help you move towards a uh, lower debt load or even a zero debt load. But really, the primary concern is making sure that the mental health is there because if the mental health is not fixed and or you're put on the right path, if it wasn't the debt, it may be something else in your life that's causing you that same stress. So it's just a matter of learning how to deal with that and then figuring out mechanisms that you can then appropriately chip away at the debt and knock it knock it down. But by all means, it's not the end of the world, so to speak, in my view, being, you know, mentally fit. But when you have that mental instability or you're not exactly right, uh, it exacerbates that situation. And it may not be that. It could be something else. But there's no reason out there that would warrant that type of response. You have to fix yourself first and then address all other problems secondary. Because Without your health, you know, it's like even in this COVID environment that we're in, as long as I, I've been saying to people consistently, as long as I'm healthy, everything else will work itself out. And that includes the mental health. You know, let's not forget that just because I avoided COVID doesn't mean that I haven't avoided other things. You want to make sure that both your physical and mental health are in order and everything else you can kind of work and figure out a way to make that better. Yeah. Something that I keep repeating to myself is, I am healthy, I am safe. And I think that's something that a lot of us can just try to focus on in like the big picture and and holding on to that and grounding ourselves in these, you know, great facts. I am healthy and I am safe. And even if I have $300,000 in student loan debt, I'm healthy and I am safe. And in this moment, given everything that is going on, that is something that is huge and that is priceless. And so I think we should take that fact into account. And then also... For years, I've been saying that debt is not a death sentence and you are not alone and you are not alone. You are not your debt. I know I think a lot of people conflate their self-worth with their debt and they think that, oh, because I'm in $300,000 in debt because I went to law school, that maybe I'm worth nothing or maybe I couldn't find a job or maybe I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer and now I have all of this debt and for what? And I think there's a lot of emotions around debt. And, you know, I just want people to look into for student loans, especially federal student loans, look into student loan forgiveness or income driven repayment. If it's credit card, yeah, look into debt consolidation, talk to your uh, credit card holder and see if you can negotiate the interest rate, you know, potentially work with someone at a nonprofit credit counseling agency, you know, definitely don't fall prey to a scam and you want to look at legit resources. But regardless of the situation, even if you were to do nothing, debt is not a death sentence. And I often try to tell people like, what is the worst thing that could happen? Because to my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to me, the worst thing that can happen is you ruin your credit and your tax refund gets intercepted by the IRS, but you're not going to jail. You're not going to have the mafia, you know, come beat you up or, you know, whatever. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, like, ruining your credit and having your tax refund intercepted forever, your social security intercepted forever. Like that's obviously not ideal, but that that's, I think the worst thing that could happen to you if you just don't pay your debt. Right. 
Yeah, I think these two things that we're talking about, the mental aspect, the mental health and the financial health, I think these two things really root back to one thing in particular, and that is we really need an educational system without getting into, you know, it in depth that really teaches our youngsters these two areas because number one, they're very important areas but I don't think they're focused on. I think our youngsters need to learn at a very young age that their mental health has to be focused on. It has to be addressed. If they have an issue, they can freely talk about it and discuss it with others, whether it be a a friend, a family member, or even a counselor. And on the other side, I think our children need to learn how to handle basic financial planning and Debt management is certainly a component of that because I think a lot of people don't get those areas worked on early on in their lives. And even if they're fine and mentally fit, uh, you see perfectly regular people ending up in debt and not realizing how they got there because nobody taught them how to evaluate whether taking on the debt was a good move, bad move, necessary, unnecessary you know, thinking out longer term and planning. There's so many factors in it. And I think it all roots back, going back to that early age. And if we start instilling these principles, it will really have a positive effect on both the debt situation that we've seen in this country, as well as the mental health concerns that we've seen as well. Love that. I think definitely more financial literacy and having these conversations earlier would definitely serve a lot of us better. And so I think having that space to have that conversation and start it early, if you have kids, especially now is the time. Absolutely. The earlier, the better. Yeah. So once again, as your, you know, your work as a financial planner, what are some common mistakes that people make that have an impact on their mental and financial health? I know we kind of just dived into that, you know, potentially getting into debt that they can't manage, but you know, what are some other common mistakes that people make that have a big impact on their mental and financial health? And what tips would you give to correct those issues? Yeah. So I I think one of the, uh, you know, it's kind of a uh, common mistake as well as a tip and all kind of wrapped up into one is I think what we forget is we're working to live. We're working to provide. We're working to hopefully retire one day or slow down or whatever your goals and objectives are, that's going to probably take some financial uh, footings at some point later on in life. And I think what we always forget is we're our best employee. And what I mean by that is whether you work for somebody, you work for yourself, uh, freelance or whatever it is, pay yourself first. And this is where I think a lot of people kind of don't follow that methodology. Um, I remember, you know, a book that really got ingrained in my head was The Richest Man in Babylon, which throughout the entire book, it basically ingrained, pay yourself first. And the number they use was 10%. You know, if you pay yourself first, you pay yourself 10%, you put that away, you're going to be in a position to be able to reach your goals, objectives, and dreams. And I think a lot of times we forget that. We go to work, we hopefully are doing something we love. If not, maybe we're not, but we're making this money and we're not paying ourselves first. We're paying the bills, we're paying the student loans, we're paying this. 
pay yourself first, whether it's going into a 401k, a retirement plan, a, a, a savings account, an emergency fund for events like we're going through now, it doesn't, but pay yourself first. And I really think that that's a common mistake that we see a lot of times. And if we were to pay ourselves first and we were concerned about debt or, you know, when a big bill comes up that was unexpected, if we had been paying ourselves first all along and we had an emergency fund and have a plan, we'd be in such a, a better place because of that. And I think the second thing is, you know, I say this very often, and that is people spend more time planning their family or their personal vacation than they do their financial life. And it's really important to have a plan. You wouldn't drive cross country without a map or a GPS. Why are you going through life and trying to navigate a topic that you weren't taught in school in most cases, you don't really know a lot about, and you probably don't have the time to address it because you're busy working and doing fun stuff that you want to do. Uh, get a plan together and put some infrastructure in place so that you can follow it, pay yourself first. And then what happens is as those critical financial events that we spoke about earlier come up in your life, again, it's not going to get rid of all the impact, but it's going to mitigate the impact. And then it will also allow you mentally to deal with it a little bit better. And it's not hopefully not going to have as much of a mental impact on your uh, situation. Yeah, having a savings account is super important, whether it's in a high yield savings account or, you know, it's invested, having that money can just be a huge buffer when things come up. And, you know, I think another common mistake is people not necessarily reading the fine print, not knowing what their interest rate is on a credit card or, you know, having these misconceptions. I know some people have said like, oh, it's a good thing to carry a balance on a credit card. And it's like, no, no, it is not. That is a myth. That does not help you build credit. Once again, that is a myth. <laughs> Don't do that. So yeah, I think there are a lot of different things that can happen, you know, financially that we, that might feel good in the short term, but be terrible for the long term. Or, you know, not looking at the fine print. Yeah, not paying yourself first. All of these can have a huge impact on your mental and financial wellness. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is that money and your mental wellness are very tied together. You know, if you look, if you were charting yourself and you're scoring your mental health from zero to 10 on a daily basis, 10 being supreme mental health, if you started scoring yourself on a daily basis and you started looking at some patterns, I would probably say that if you looked at you know instances where large bills came up that you weren't expecting or other expense came up or maybe you had to take a pay cut or something financially was motivated, I would have to guess over time, maybe there should be a study about this, I don't know, but I, I think over time you'd see some correlation between those financial events happening and you not scoring your mental health a 10. They're just very tied together. And it's important that you have those two things really working in sync for you as best you can. They're not going to work out exactly the same, but if you can do enough to mitigate those ups and downs of your financial life, I think it will also mitigate some of the ups and downs of your mental well-being over time as well. 
Definitely. I was on a podcast last week where I was asked, you know, is there a correlation between mental health and financial health and can they be kind of separated? And I said, no, I think they're really intertwined in a way that we can't really separate them because your mental health will affect your financial health. You know, I remember when I was depressed, I was spending, I wasn't saving, I didn't really care. There was no plan. And also your financial health can affect your mental health. Like I said, I was extremely depressed only because of my debt. It wasn't clinical depression like I've had in the past. It was situational depression based around this very large number, $81,000 in student loan debt. And that made me depressed. And so I think they're inextricable in their relationship and their feedback loop on how they make us feel and how we manage our money. And yeah, I think that's why it's so important that we address both, which is the goal of this podcast, the Mental Health and Well Show. And, you know, I'm really glad that you pointed that out and mentioned that. I couldn't agree more. They're they're completely inextricably tied together, and it's important that they be addressed together. And I applaud you for putting this podcast together and addressing these topics in the way that you do, because I'm sure that it's helping a lot of a lot of people because they are important topics to address, and they are so tied together. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, it's been a blast doing this show and I've had a blast interviewing you today. Is there anything else that you would like to add or share with our audience? The only thing I would share is if, you know, if anybody finds themselves having an issue and, you know, needs some assistance, um, I'm not a mental health professional, but being somebody who's advocated for others, I do have a lot of connections and resources and uh, to navigate the system. And it's a very complicated one. It's not an easy system to navigate. They could always reach out to me. I'd be happy to help them. And if they see any resources on AFSP.org that they think would be helpful to them, their kids, their school districts, what have you, I'd be more than happy to assist them in any way that I could as well and uh, further the mission of uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Wonderful. So where can people find you and contact you? So business-wise, the best way is online, midlandfinancial.com. We have links to all of my social media. I'm very active on all platforms. Uh, AFSP can be found at afsp.org. And if you want to learn more about my brother-in-law's story and how we came to raise the money that we did or do and the awareness, feel free to visit keithmilano.org. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show and thanks for sharing your expertise. Thanks, Melanie. I appreciate uh, being here and the time and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mentalhealthandwealthshow at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.